this week uh, was have kind of a uh, one-off message. And I love the book of Philippians, and I've preached uh, not through Philippians before. Um, I've done uh, a Bible study through Philippians before with other people, and, um, and I, I preached a message like this, similar to this, um, a few months back when I was asked to preach at another church. And, um, and so I thought it would be a good one uh, whenever I was doing it then. I was thinking, oh, that'd be a good one for, for us to do sometime when I just have one slot to fill. Um, so uh, one of the things that I really like about, I, I don't really like topical preaching typically, um, just because I feel like I need a whole bunch of background information, and I need a whole bunch of uh, information from the Bible in order to do that. So if I ever did a topical sermon, there'd be like 84 verses on the screen from different places to give us a full, just because I wouldn't feel comfortable talking about it without that, right? Maybe that's just a, a short uh, shortcoming of my own. But um, in Philippians, this particular topic of the mind of Christ, I think is pretty easy to trace out. Um, we could go really full, and we could take a long, long time to do it, or we could go simple. And my desire is to go simple today, um, so we'll see if I accomplish that or not. Uh, I was listening to uh, somebody read a Spurgeon sermon, and I realized that his, uh, I, I like his style, I don't think I could ever reproduce it, it's very impassioned, um, not to mention King Jamesy uh, in the way that he writes or speaks. Um, but I need solid verses to hang on to. I'm not saying he isn't. I'm just saying, you know, he tends to have this very impassioned emotional uh, appeal, and um, I just can't get there without some solid facts, um, without some solid verses to hang my hat on. So that's the way I wanted to approach this particular topic. Um, We've all heard this before. Um, I'm going to read this now, and uh, we're going to read it together. I have it on screen. Uh, It's from Philippians 2, 5 through 11. I think this is... Actually, I don't remember whether this is the ESV or NIV, so you'll figure it out, surprise, when you get there. Um, But let's have a word of prayer, and then we're going to read these verses together and talk about what this means. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. God, we totally depend on you to reveal your word to us. We need you to help us to understand what your word means, and then we need your power to help us to live it out and apply it and obey it. Um, And none of this is possible if we haven't been illuminated by the gospel of Jesus Christ through your Holy Spirit. So I just ask that you'd be with us, that you'd teach us, and you'd help us to grow in having Christ's uh, manner of thinking and having the mind of Christ. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, you know, what does this mean, having the mind of Christ? 
What does that, what does that actually look like? Um, if you're interested in word studies, I think they can be fun. Um, the word is phreneo, if that's how you pronounce it. I don't have a clue. Um, but there's about three different ways that you see this word's meaning if you look at it in the New Testament. Um, one is having understanding or being wise. Um, and I think this is uh, from 1 Corinthians uh, where he talks about, well, anyway, I forget the reference now. I had it in my notes, but I for, I'm not going to check there now. But there's like three different ways. And one is, the, one is the idea of having understanding or being wise. Another is a particular way of thinking. Think worldview, right? Or a way of assessing a situation. Um, and then a third way is direct, directing the mind towards something or striving for something. This is in the sense of like Colossians 3, where he says, set your mind on things that are above where Christ is, right? So d- striving toward or, or, or putting your mind on something actively. But the way we're dealing with it here is mostly uh, in your way of thinking. Uh, that's usually the way he de- deals with it here. And interestingly enough, and if you want to look this up, you can look it up. I'm not going to go through these today. I just don't think we have time. Um, but there are seven verses in which you'll find this word in the book of Philippians. And then in two or three of those verses, he uses the word twice, and he'll use it in a slightly different way. So if, you, if you're interested, look up what those verses are. I don't have them for you today. And then read through those and check the exhortations and the truth that is accompanying those things, right? Those, that's, a, that's another helpful way to look in, especially in a short letter like Philippians. Um, but what I did was I wanted to identify just a few short ways that we can have the mind of Christ. Uh, And so the first of those ways is understanding the gospel and how that relates, right? Because in in, in chapter 2, what he does is he frames what he's saying to the church, the exhortation he's saying to the church in the first part, um, where he says, and I'll just get right to the exhortation here in verse 3, he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each to the interest of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Be of the same mind. Have this mind among yourselves, I think is the NIV, uh, way the NIV, or I'm sorry, no, I just read the NIV. That's the way the ESV reads. Um, but the point is, think like Christ. When you're dealing with each other, think like Christ. But I wanted to to look at the gospel first because he says this is your thinking or this is your mindset or this belongs to you in Christ Jesus. So, if you are not in Christ Jesus, this is not your way of thinking. That's very, very simply put, if you do not belong to Christ, this is not your natural mindset. It is not even a mindset that's part of your frame of thinking. So, what is the natural mindset? Titus 1.15 says that to the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted, corrupted of mind, and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny Him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Because they're corrupt in their mind. 1 Timothy 6.3 If anyone teaches otherwise or contrary to the teaching that Paul has just given and does not agree to sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and they understand nothing. 
They have an unhealthy interest in controversy and quarrel about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicion, constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Or in Romans, you know, where he says so very plainly, so several, several times in 18 through 25, that when people had rejected and suppressed the true knowledge of God that he made plain to them through creation, he gave them over to what? A depraved mind. The reason that we need the gospel to have a right mindset is that the sinful man, I'm talking about all humanity, not just guys, the sinful human has a corrupted way of thinking because of sin. And that corrupted way of thinking leads to a corrupted way of living, ultimately leads to hell. James puts it that, that uh, in, our, in our lives, when we're tempted by sin, temptation gives birth to sin, sin gives birth to death. So we need the gospel. But it's not just about the gospel of Jesus Christ being foundational for us individually, which it is. It's also that it needs to take priority in our lives. We need to have a gospel priority in order to have the mind of Christ. Because, I mean, consider back up this, this I don't know if it's a poem or if it was an early part of a hymn, I don't know what it was, but in, in, in 6 through, um, uh, through 11 of chapter 2, uh, but he says, that, he says that Christ came to do uh, the will of God in the gospel. And, you know, you can see, I think there's 12 verses in the New Testament where Jesus is quoted as saying why he came. And a lot of it has to do with doing the Father's will, has to do with uh, dying for his, uh, taking the place of his sheep, it has to do with giving life. It it, it touches on on the gospel in many, many aspects, but I'm just going to give you what Paul says in 1 Timothy. He says, Christ came into the world to save sinners. That's why he came. So Jesus came, yes, for a lot of other reasons, to show us who God is, yes, to reveal truth, yes, to all those things that the Bible says he did, but ultimately, Jesus Christ came to accomplish the gospel. That is, he came to die for sinners. He came to accomplish God's eternal plan of salvation. And so we also need to have a gospel priority. Now take a look at the book of Philippians in In chapter 1, Paul says something that's really, really important to us here. Uh, And I'm going to go ahead and read 12 through... uh, I'm going to read 12 through 18. He says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to every, everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that... Um, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Now, 
Paul shows us very, very clearly what it means to have a gospel priority. Paul is in prison. Not sure how long he's been in prison by the time he writes this letter, but he's in prison. And it's not like prison today where there's TV and meals and maybe, you know, recreational time and all that sort of nonsense. This is rough prison. When you look at how he is, uh, how he's in prison in Philippi, when they put him in prison in Philippi the first time, uh, they beat him publicly after stripping him, uh, probably naked, maybe just down to his loincloth, I don't know. But they stripped him down, he and Barnabas, and they beat them with rods. Then they threw him in jail in the intersection and they locked him up in the stocks. So his feet and his legs are, 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 are trapped and he's been beaten and he might still be naked. And they rejoice. Now, I don't know exactly what the conditions of his prison are right now while he's writing to the Philippians. But he says, I want you to know that what has happened to me is advancing the gospel. (laughs) Really? When I'm stuck in traffic, I get annoyed. It's why I like my wife to drive. She's... I can, I, can, I can handle it when we're stuck in traffic and she's driving. But when I'm driving, I cannot handle traffic. Being stuck in traffic. Paul is stuck in prison. And it's not like he's, doing, he's, not like he's there for anything good. I mean, uh, he doesn't deserve to be there is what I'm saying. He doesn't, he's not thinking about what he's done and, and, and you know, trying to figure out how he can repent of it. He's, he's there because he's preaching the gospel. And he doesn't interpret that information, that the, the, he doesn't interpret what's happening in his life right now, this trial that he's undergoing, in a woe-is-me kind of way. He looks at it through the lens of what's best for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And by the way, what's best for others. He says, all of these people have heard the gospel because I'm here, and so I'm happy. And I hear that other people are preaching the gospel. Some because they want to hurt me, but I don't care because people are hearing the gospel. Other people, it's, it's, it's showing how much they love me, and I'm happy, and I'm going to rejoice because the gospel is preached. And so let me ask you, how important is preaching the gospel to you? How important is it, how much of a priority in your life is it to preach the gospel? And when, when you suffer, when you struggle, how often... Do you consider, how does this affect the gospel of Jesus Christ? How does this work out to the greater glory of God? How often do we have a gospel priority? Secondly, humility. The condescension of Jesus Christ, that even though he's in the form of God, takes the form of a servant. Content to be found in human flesh, and then to humble himself further in obedience. But humility. Now, usually we talk about humility and people have this idea of, you know, sort of a, a bowing and a scraping. I think that's the, the kind of the regular cultural idea of humility. Oh, I'm not that important. I'm not that special. I'm not that great. But let me just tell you something. Humility is not about false humility. Humility is not about like bowing and scraping and pretending to be less than you are. Humility is knowing exactly who you are. Knowing exactly who you are, not forcing that on anyone else. I remember um, somebody saying, you know, like that one of the principles of leadership, 
was that if you have to remind other people that you're in charge, you're not. Because humility doesn't demand respect. That's not humility. Humility is the opposite of pride. Shame isn't the opposite of pride. Humility is the opposite of pride. Humility knows who you are. And so let me just take a second to tell you who you are. In, um, in the beginning of this letter, Paul calls himself and Timothy servants. The word really is slave. But it's not an accident, right, that he says in, in chapter 2 when he talks of Christ that he took the nature of a servant. He took the nature of a slave. And then Paul says, I am a slave. I am a servant. We're also called to be servants. We're sons and daughters. We've been chosen. Go to, go to Ephesians chapter 1 and look at all the things that a person is in Christ. Wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. We're sons and daughters of the King. Adopted into the family of the God who created, who spoke the world into existence. But we also have a job to do. We have a place. We're servants. When Jesus talks about those coming into the kingdom, can't remember the quote, so you just have to look it up yourself. He says, when he says, welcome and well done, they'll say, we're just doing what we should. We're servants. We're just serving as we should. Humility. We have to know who we are. Um, and, and who we are, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to also look at, um, at um, chapter 3. Uh, because Paul talks about the, the pride that he could have had in his humanity, in his being a Pharisee. And I think that really gives us a good scope for what humility needs to mean for us as followers of Jesus. He says, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write these things to you again, and it's a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Now, just from those... Verses, you might be like, man, what is he talking about? If you didn't remember this, this, this book, you might like, who's he talking about? Dogs, mutilators, what are you talking about? He's talking about the religious Jews who had said they believed in Christ, whether they did individually or not, I have no idea, and they're forcing people to get circumcised. Because he says, you also have to obey the law of Moses. Who's he talking about? He's talking about religious moralists who add works to their faith and who urge others to add works to their faith. In Galatians, he says, I wish they'd just go all the way and, and sever themselves completely. He says, it is we who are the circumcision. We who serve. We who serve God by His Spirit who boast in Christ Jesus. This is where our humility comes from. Because if we're doing any boasting, we're boasting in the Lord and what He's done. Not boasting in ourselves. He says, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. He said, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. 
Paul says, if anybody else has a reason to brag about what they've done in terms of earthly righteousness and what they've done and what they've done on a scale of good deeds, I have better reason to brag than any of you. But look at what he says in verse 7. Whatever were gains to me now, I consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. So whatever, and he goes on to say, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Humility acknowledges, yes, what God has done for us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it's acknowledging that we can't do anything for ourselves and that whatever we could look at in our lives and say, oh, I did this good thing or I did that good thing or I didn't mess up this time or look at what I've done here. That's all garbage. That's all worthless in comparison with the righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus Christ. So, the gospel has to be a foundation and a priority of your life if you want to grow in what it means to have the mind of Christ. And humility has to be an objective if you want to grow in what it means to have the mind of Christ. Thirdly, love. Um, And I'm going to try to be a little bit more brief with the rest of this so that we get out of here on time. But love, there is no other greater picture of love than the picture the Bible gives us in Romans 5 or in 1 John. And that is that God gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for sinners. And that even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That's the model of love. It is self-giving, self-sacrificial desire for and action in accordance with the good of others. In short, spiritual benevolence. Gospel good for other people. That's what love is. It's desiring and working for the gospel good for other people, even at a cost for yourself. That's why Paul could say, I'm in prison, but I can rejoice because good things are happening for other believers. And in the end of chapter 1, um, I, 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 I know we have time, but I just I, I want to read this anyway because I think it's so good that I don't know that I can sum it up. I can't sum it up better than him. He says, um, in the end of chapter 1, he says, uh, he's talking about whether he's going to live or die, and he says, to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what will I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and that I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. This is incredible to me that Paul is in prison. He's suffering for the name of Christ. And he knows, you know, I could die and I would just go and be with Christ. But if I live, it would be better for others. Yes, it would mean more suffering. I don't know how long I'm going to be in prison here. But he sort of makes this decision within himself. I don't think it has any bearing on what's going to happen, but I think he analyzes the situation that he's in and he says, what's best for the name of Christ and what's best for other people? And he lands on what's best for other people, not what's better for himself. 
A couple other examples that you will find in chapter 2. I would like you to go and read them later. I'm not going to read them now. But he gives us the example of Timothy. And he says, I'm going to send Timothy to you. I don't have anybody else who looks after other people's interests and puts other people ahead of himself and who listens to what I have commanded and, and taught him over the years better than anybody else. I don't have a better servant of Jesus Christ to who's going to show love to you and take care of you. So I'm going to send him. And also Epaphroditus, who served you guys so faithfully, almost died carrying your gift to me, got really sick. He was, really, he was close to death. I thought he was going to die. I was worried. I was heartbroken because he's such a great minister of the gospel. He's been such a great help to me because I'm going to send you Epaphroditus too. So in Timothy... We see this wonderful example of what it means to put other people ahead of yourself, to love other people, humility, and desiring and working for the good for somebody else in accordance with the gospel. And then Epaphroditus shows us the exact same example. And we know about Timothy. Two letters got written to him. We, we see his story in the book of Acts. We don't have a ton about Epaphroditus. But we do have Paul's testimony about him right here. He loved other people and he served Jesus. And he's a great example of what it means for us to love others and to have the gospel good of others in our minds. And then Paul himself, even though Epaphroditus had gotten better and he was very helpful to Paul, again, I would just strongly urge you, read 19 through the end of chapter 2. And he sends him back to them because he heard they were worried about Epaphroditus and he wanted them to be encouraged and be able to be back together because he knew that that would mean more and it would be better for their good. And so he was able to look over his own good in the moment. So let me ask you, are you willing to forego personal comfort in whatever way that requires for the gospel good of others? Whether it's somebody in your family, a child, sibling, spouse, whether it's somebody in the community who doesn't know Jesus Christ. Are you willing to put yourself out, to do without, to suffer for the gospel good of another? Because that's what it means to have the mind of Christ. Obedience. Jesus Christ obeyed in absolutely everything. Fully obedient. That's why his sacrifice was effective. If Jesus Christ had not obeyed in one single area, he couldn't have been who the Bible says he is. And he wouldn't have been a sufficient sacrifice. Because only a perfect sacrifice will do. And he died so that we could obey. And just as disobedience to God in the initial sense makes us more and more corrupt in our mind and our thinking. Again, go back to Romans chapter 1. So obedience to God is part of the process by which we are sanctified. Um, and I'll just direct your attention to chapter 2, and I'll read it right for you. He says, after, immediately after he gives this wonderful uh, um, poem, or maybe early hymn about Christ, he says, Therefore, or in light of that, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you uh, to will and to act in order to fill his, fulfill his good purpose. 
Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and a crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast of you on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. What's he mean? He says, you obey because that's part of your sanctification process. The more you obey, the more you grow in sanctification. All that leads up to ultimately one day shining in the stars, shining in the sky like stars. I think he's going back to a verse from Daniel, chapter 12, I believe. Um, the idea is, is that as we obey, we are more and more transformed. Just like disobedience um, without the gospel brings you a greater corruption in the mind and in the heart, so obedience in, uh, in line with the gospel and believing the gospel is part of our sanctification process. Makes us more like him. Contributes to the holiness and the glory that we're going to bear in eternity. Finally, another way to think about growing in, um, in, in uh, the mind of Christ is to seek the glory of God above all else. In John chapter 8, Jesus said that I seek my Father's glory. I don't seek my own glory. In chapter 2, toward the end, he says... Uh, that ultimately what happens is, yes, uh, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow, this is verse 10, and in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. To what? The glory of the Father. Ephesians chapter 1, all those things that he said that we have, that we are in Christ, if we trust in Christ, we're united with Christ. He says two or three times in that, in that awesome section on Thanksgiving, he says, this results in the praise of the glorious grace of God. It all goes back to the glory of God. So seek the approval and seek the glory of God in every situation. And if you're confused about that, you have his word that tells you what will glorify God in any given situation. So these five principles I thought would be helpful for us in growing in what it looks like to have the mind of Christ. That we would make the gospel a priority teaching and living out. That we would make it our goal to be humble. Yes, to know who we are in Christ. But to, you know, as Paul says in Romans, you know, think honestly and openly about, or, uh, honestly and rightly about ourselves. Appraise ourselves accurately. Don't make more of ourselves than we ought to. That includes the assessment of your sin and your sanctification progress. And then out of that humility, Love others, that is, serve others for their gospel good. Obeying God, without grumbling, without complaining, understanding that as you work, He is working in you and making you more like His Son. Seek His approval in all things, and you will show yourselves approved. And finally, um, sort of in place, just a, a last encouragement here. What Paul says in Philippians 4, 4 through 7. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. It's a guy writing from prison, and he can rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. It has to do with your thinking. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts 
and your minds in Christ Jesus. Rejoice in everything because God is making you more like his son. And pray in everything because you have a relationship with the Father through Jesus Christ. And if you are short on humility, ask God and he will help you to be humble. If you're short and having trouble with obedience, ask God and he will help you. And think back to Hebrews, right? Jesus was tempted in every way and he's always able to help us and give us grace and mercy in the time of our need, in the time of our temptation. Or as Paul says in in Romans, you know, if he's going to reconcile you to himself through the death of his son, how much more through his life? He will help you. So rejoice in everything and pray in everything. And grow in these things and you will grow in what it means to have the mind of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. God, thank you so much for this letter of Philippians. Thank you so much for this beautiful poem uh, that's here about Jesus. That shows us uh, maybe a concise way, maybe a, uh, maybe, a, maybe a condensed version of how we ought to put on Christ. But Father, I pray that we wouldn't just look at these verses. That we'd look at the whole New Testament. We'd look at the whole Bible to understand more and more who you are. Not just so that we can praise you, but we want to start there. But also so that we can emulate you. So that we can put the good things we see about your character into practice. We know that you're working, with us, working through us, uh, working in us because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us to grow in what it means to think and to act and to view the world as Christ and to behave as Christ. Help us to grow in that as a church. Help us to bring you much glory. In Jesus' name, amen.